0: Yo, Taylor, so it's 7 o'clock in the morning, and between your show and Jason's show, I've now listened to three hours of podcasts. (laughs) I have issues. Anyway, dude, that was an
1: amazing, amazing episode. The guy you had on, I'm sorry, it's 7 o'clock in the morning, and I've been up since 4. That dude was a total boss, man. That was the coolest to hear from that. See, I'm not making you use your horn this message good for me (laughs) anyway dude thank you for that
2: episode that was so so cool and uh yeah i'll talk to you later peace out
3: That was Joe at the top of the show there, the caller who inspired our recent episode where I got to collaborate with uh, Rick Stump talking about metagaming and player skill. Thank you, Joe, for calling in, and, man, thanks uh, thanks for the positive feedback there. I'm really glad that that was a good episode. I've gotten a couple folks who have told me they enjoyed that episode. Rick and I had a lot of fun recording it, so you'll definitely be back online again in the future. As Jason likes to say uh, over at Nerd's Variety Cast, it's always more fun to record with friends. Bouncing ideas off of each other it leads to a better conversation than somebody alone answering call-ins in the car. That is actually a new direction I think I'm going to try to go. I'm not going to create a panel show or anything, but I'm looking to have more guests on the show do tandem episodes. One, because it's easier to edit. I usually don't. <laughs> I just kind of put everything in there and uh, it goes where it goes. But two, because it's really good to have other voices and other perspectives and that brings out a lot of good conversation. So. Be on the lookout for that. I'm going to try to have more guests on the show. I may reach out to some folks. I'm trying to get some guests who aren't necessarily in our ecosystem. So uh, a lot of the Anchor podcasters know each other, and we call each other, and we uh, make guest appearances on each other's shows all the time, and it's fun to—that's a—that's awesome uh, i love doing that i'm going to be on a cerebrovore episode coming up with jason and daniel he's announced it on his show uh, so i'm not down in that at all but it's also a lot of fun and i wanted to expand that horizon so i'm trying to reach out to some people we don't always hear from some people who have perspectives that can add to the overall community and hey maybe i can talk them in to come and hanging out with us and becoming one of the regulars that said You got a guy sitting in a car today on his way to work answering call-ins. Thank you, Joe, for calling in, and thank you, Jason, for the next series of responses to the metagaming versus player skill episode.
0: it may be me being a curmudgeon here, but I'm seven minutes into the new show and it's very exciting, very happy to listen to it. Glad you got him on there. It's a definitely gonna be an interesting conversation. I'm not trying to be negative, but the only difference between example one and example two of his player stories, his anecdotes, are the wording. In the first example, the players knew about cavalry tactics and mass combat. So the characters we're not talking about characters we're talking about players knew that in what he said I'm just using his words so if the players had said well we're gonna take the high ground and we're gonna split up so we get flanking bonus and they'll get a minus three to AC and we'll get plus two to attack and they'll have a minus three to hit us cuz they're gonna be looking up in the Sun right would that be meta knowledge would that be meta gaming at that point because they used gaming terms in their description and in the second example you you, you've got a a wounded combatant there bugbear and he doesn't say if they've ever encountered bugbears before but we're assuming we're going to assume that they're well they have encountered and killed the other bugbears, so they have some clue what damage they take so if instead of talking about oh magic missile and this and that that they just said that one's pretty wounded just finish him off You, you know would that have been different than talking with game terms because you can, it I, I don't know if you're fighting something, especially something you've killed before and they've killed bugbears before. They've got an idea about how much it takes to kill a bugbear, right? And they know they've done a grievous wound to it already. Then why, you know, that, that's when you walk up and do the coup de grace, right? You slit his throat with a knife, whatever. So I, <laughs> I, I realize I'm being difficult and pedantic here, but I, I really think it's a terminology issue. It, it, from what I'm hearing in the first seven minutes is it's terminology issues, because in both cases, player knowledge of game mechanics are what drove what they're doing. That's what I'm hearing. In one example, they don't talk about game mechanics, in the second one they do, and that's the difference between player knowledge and metagaming. I I don't agree with that. I think both of those could be viewed in either light. And and I don't, you, you know, I I do. But I'm glad you got Rick on there. I'm only seven minutes in. It's a long podcast. I'm looking forward to diving into the rest of it. So please don't take this as me being a hateful s**t. You can get that out. Sorry, I know you got a family show. Because um, I'm not, and I'm glad he's on there. I'm just giving my initial impression. Off to hear the rest.
3: No offense taken, and heaps shall be added. Regarding the impression, you are correct. There is a difference in the terminology that's used. However, we have to take into account the reason for that difference. The reason for the terminology difference belies the motive or the thought process of the player. To look at the example with the magic missile versus the dagger, the party knew, well the players knew, that the monster had a d8 hit die and was of one hit die as a creature. If they had counted and dealt seven damage and the creature was still standing, because of that meta knowledge, it must have one hit point left. Unless it's a uh, special creature, but we're not going to dive into that. So, knowing that it has one hit point left and saying, don't waste a magic missile, that is because magic missile dealing two to seven damage is overkill. If I can throw a dagger, if I can just strike and succeed, that's one hit point worth of damage easily, and we've conserved that resource. That, because it's based on meta knowledge, is meta gaming. Conversely, I agree with you, if the term was different, uh, say this bugbear looks severely wounded, Uh, I'm going to finish him off with my knife, don't waste your spell, that is not metagaming because looks wounded does not equal for a fact he has one hit point left. Could a skilled wordsmith figure out a way to slip metagaming in under the guise of a uh, character observation, eh, probably. But in the moment, eh, how many people are going to invest that kind of uh, cognition? T- yeah. To your point, though, that is a valid uh, a valid criticism. Doubling back to talk to the coming down the hillside with the sun in their eyes, and they get a minus two. That is an example of game mechanics promoting verisimilitude. So, I think it's common knowledge. Anyone who has walked up a hill in their life knows that going up a hill is more difficult than going down a hill. At the same time, anyone who has seen the sun, which admittedly, in our circles, may uh, may include only a plurality, but we'll, uh, we're neither here nor there. Anyone who's seen the sun knows that if I'm Facing the direction of the sun, I have a hard time seeing. So, for a player to suggest that we should attack them from with the sun at our backs, that's common sense. And we, Rick and I, go into detail about what is common sense, what is common knowledge versus what what is metagaming. And I think you actually have some calls where you talk about that and uh, agree with us at that point. So we'll fast forward to that point in the episode, but. The game imitating reality and characters and players having a shared understanding of reality, that's not metagaming. That is mechanics supporting player skill. Because I know that coming down with the sun at my back, the enemy will have a hard time stabbing me, that is something that the system rewards, and if the system does not reward it, the... Rule zero: Amend your game principles. Those encourage the referee to make a ruling on the spot uh, to to reward it. So that's one of the that's one of the beauties of those kind of games, uh, where you can apply that kind of stuff. Now, if the player knows that the game has that rule, so we're using chainmail combat and we're going up a hill, so the player knows that they can't use the charge action. Is that metagaming? No because they are still communicating in the same real world brain knowledge. So because I know that going up a hill puts me at a competitive disadvantage on the field, I choose not to go up the hill, uh, that's fine. Similarly, if the player knows that the system penalizes facing the sun, uh, I'm not sure what system does, but if, uh, if we're playing a system where there's designated sun facing and you get a minus two penalty the player knowing what the penalty is that doesn't necessarily become metagaming until they combine that with other meta knowledge so because the player action is grounded in and motivated by what would be common knowledge i would not consider that metagaming
4: All right, Taylor, try as I might. I'm not convinced I found the episode that Jason referred to uh, about being a good player. I like the idea of this campfire discussion and, and helping the GM to spread the spotlight around. But equally, I am sensitive to players that maybe just want to sit back and I like to feel that I, I could read the room in in that instance nobody's trying to pressure anybody into being uh, a, a character they don't want to be or play in a style that they don't want to play in. It's, it's more about sometimes you can get a, a kind of super dominant character that crops up or a player that crops up and, you know, you just get this one-way traffic between them and the GM and I just like to see it spread around a little bit, so that's all I try and do, really. Anyway... Take care, mate, and I'll catch you later. Thank you
3: for calling to confirm. I believe you and I are on the same page in that regard. Having been at tables in the past where I was the quiet one, believe it or not, I am the quiet one (laughs) in a lot of these games when I'm not running. But um, having been at those kind of tables, it is easy for a domineering personality to take over. And it's important... When involving people in the game, to make sure that they are involved in a way that's catering to their to their desire, and that's a that's a noble thing to do. It's an important. While I've said before, it's not the responsibility of the referee to ensure that everyone has fun. It is a nice thing to do to make sure that uh, the table is conducive to fun. So, not uh, not it, it's a complex uh, emotion, but. Before I babble myself into a hole, I do believe that you and I are on very similar pages, at least the same chapter. Thank you for calling in.
0: Hey Taylor, Jason here. Enjoyed hearing your thoughts on the Broken Sword and Aquatic Adventures. Um, I don't think I have anything specific to mention, but overall, I, I we're not we're, we're not that far apart. I I definitely think it really depends on the players and different. You know, if somebody is very content being a subdued player. There's nothing wrong with that, and obviously, you don't reach out and try to get everybody out of their shell. Uh, well, some people are gonna do that, but but you really shouldn't. But uh, but it, you know it, they're tools in a toolbox, right? And and you take what's useful and you leave the rest. Makes sense to me. Oh, my other comment is having had back problems in the past. Um, yeah, man, I I hope you're past that now. And yeah, I know it sucks. Um, yep, and it's raining on me, so I'm gonna let you go.
3: It does. Back injuries are kind of like toe injuries in that absolutely nothing you can do during the convalescence to heal them will not irritate them more. (laughs) But that's in the past, so hopefully we don't have to worry about it in the future. Looking into getting a smaller travel crib for the baby. But he's getting bigger, so I don't know how well that'll that'll work. (laughs) We'll see where we get there. Thank you. Thank you for your concern and for the call.
2: Hi, Taylor. I just wanted to call in and say that I enjoyed your episode on aquatic adventures and the broken sword. I thought that was a really good example of trying to be inspired by fiction and bringing some ideas to the table. For gaming, I agree, there's not enough aquatic um, ad- adventures in in our role-playing games. We're often too terrestrial. And uh, yeah, you brought up a lot of good ones. One, I think you, um, I know you weren't trying to be exhaustive, but so one I'll add to your thoughts there was, once somebody gets pushed overboard and goes into the water, you know, as these battles raged on, it would draw sharks and other... Um, sea creatures, and so, of course, there's also the chance that they would um, try to get picked off by a, a sea creature, which is kind of cool.
3: Ho oh, ho ho! I think my next aquatic battle is going to be in Kraken territory. Too many people go overboard, people start getting pulled!
2: And then, uh, finally, I wanted to say something about the sliders you were talking about. I was trying to characterize those sliders for myself and where I sat on them, and I felt like after... Um, just the two that you mentioned, I, I, I realized there were more sliders, right? That I needed to to list for myself because if um, character depth or or character playing a character is one slider, I'm you know I'm halfway into that, maybe uh, maybe on the light side a half. Like playing a character is important to me, but it, it grows in importance as the as the game goes on. And then the second one is more like system mastery. I'm pretty far into that one. I like to know the system, but I also don't like really heavy systems that are hard to know, if that makes sense. (laughs) And then um, I would add at least one more slider, which has to do with world lore, whether, and that could be two different sliders. One where uh, world building, which I'm heavy on and world exploration, which I'm fairly heavy on. Meaning I sort of like to have a hand in it, but, um, but yeah, exploring the world is another one.
3: As an interlude, dear listeners, this is a bit of a hodgepodge call-in episode. I do have calls for the most recent episode where we talked about player skill and metagaming, but also some other calls uh, earlier back, uh, as this call is, about the, one of the concepts I talked about in the Aquatic Adventures episode I did, talking about drawing inspiration from Paul Anderson's The Broken Sword. And Ray, admittedly, I forgot what I had talked about in that episode. So when I heard the message the first time, I was excited, thinking you were talking about tiny hamburgers. But having recentered myself, I think that's uh, an interesting breakdown. In the episode, I had kind of broken it into essentially the character, uh, the role play. Versus the role play, so ROLE versus ROLL, how much do we get into character, how much do we develop our character versus how much do we engage with the game, how much do we roll the dice and rely on the mechanics. But you're absolutely right. There's so much more into each of those elements. Uh, and some of those elements walk across, uh, they transpose those lines. So, world building. That's a huge thing I'm into. I really enjoy, when I'm running a game, creating a deep and uh, easily immersive environment for my players to uncover. And as a player, I really enjoy finding bits and pieces or learning more about the world I'm in, uh, be it through in roleplay, engaging with NPCs and getting into the lore that way, or through the hex crawl. Where i'm uncovering uh tracks of land going over each other so great a great place so that's a great uh, i think topic for another episode i may have to think about it mull on it a little bit Uh, i may write it down and uh, who knows set up a tandem cast we'll talk through talk through the ideas
2: there are probably other sliders i don't know how many others um but you know anything that you can do in a role playing game can be a slider in terms of uh, how deep you want to go in that one of them i can think of is basically puzzle solving which isn't system mastery and it isn't character play and it isn't uh, world exploration although it might fit into that one but the idea of figuring things out like how much do you play to kind of outwit the the scenario and i i, I know i do that right like i I try to be insightful and um, make good tactics and drive to the heart of things. And uh, so that's, that's I think, another slider or sub-slider to one, of the, to one of the others. It gets very complicated the more you think about it. But it is cool to, to reflect on. So thank you for your thoughts. Again, um, well, not again. I didn't say it before. This is Ray Otis of Plunder and appreciated your podcast.
3: And I appreciate your call-in. Thank you for making it. And thank you for the prompt that inspired that episode. In the meantime, I'm thinking about a slider again, except the knob that slides up and down is actually a dial. So not only does it go up and down, but it swerves left and right. Introducing that layer of multidimensionality. And who knows, maybe that is why the genre, uh, the role-playing and fantasy adventure genre of gaming, caught on like it did. It's endless possibility for different ways for the same game to play at different tables. Very cool thoughts very cool uh, direction to to take the uh, concept in got me thinking. Again thank you for the call
0: Okay now I'm paused at just shy of 15 minutes and this story with Lou Pulsifer who will be at GrogCon by the way if this message airs before the end of next month before September 30th folks go to GrogCon you can meet Lou Pulsifer there in Orlando, but the story about characters in the game giving lectures on weaknesses of monsters and magic items and stuff, and other ones paying to go to those lectures so they can know the knowledge is awesome, and I love it, and I would totally allow that in my game, because I would make sure to seed rumors and things, so some of the knowledge in those lectures might not quite be right, <laughs> but I, I think we're getting, we're getting down to the nitty-gritty here right so i think those two examples at the beginning of the show were a little nebulous and i think you could argue them both ways but i think when you're talking about oh there's a beholder and each of its eye stalks does this and you list down the eye stalk abilities that's metagame knowledge
3: yes go to grogcon september 30 the weekend of you will not meet jason there uh, although you may meet me so Originally, uh, rewind a month or so back, uh, Jason was planning on going to GrogCon. He's been talking about it on his podcast. But uh, he, I was planning on going down also, you know, to get celebrity pictures with him. But the then he was pinging me earlier. He may not be able to make it. Some family stuff had come up. So uh, no pressure, no worries. Uh, It happens. Uh, So I'm torn as to whether or not I am gonna go now. The uh, friends that I have who are interested in it, uh, most of them either live abroad and would not be able to travel, or uh, like Jason said, he had another obligation. And yeah, I don't, I don't know if I would go on my lonesome. It's a, I believe it's primarily ad I am driving so I don't have the uh, website in front of me uh, or the event listing in front of me to quote that, but let me know call in, ping me, let me know if you're going, uh, if you want to hang out, if that would be a fun opportunity to get a beer with uh, CWR. So I will try to make that happen.
0: I obviously should have waited because not a minute later, you guys started talking about rumors and how to use them and, and whatnot. Great discussion. Really enjoying the podcast so far.
3: Lies in the lecture hall make sense too at a historical context. Think about it how many times growing up were you told that if you were in the amazon and attacked by a giant boa constrictor you should wait uh in lie down so it could try to eat your feet and by the time it got up to your waist you should use your pocket knife to decapitate it and that's how you could escape total lie total lie (laughs) so you heard it here first if you're ever attacked by a giant boa constrictor in the amazon don't rely on it to eat your feet in order to escape.
5: This is John Lennon. It certainly was a very clear and complete explanation of the difference between metagaming and player skill. Unfortunately, it was both pointless and counterproductive. The metagame is arguably the most important part of the game. It's the social aspect. It's the most important part of almost every game. Obviously, we want to make sure that things are not predictable, but that's not the same as not allowing players to use their outside knowledge to enrich their experience.
3: I'm gonna go ahead and agree with you on both fronts. First, everything I do is pretty pointless and counterproductive, so you got me there. And on top of that, using your player knowledge to enhance the experience, that's, that's something that's hard to argue against. Because I'm, I'm gonna be truthful, I'm not really stringent on uh, metagaming. I, I will usually not call a player on metagaming. Now, unless it's completely egregious. Now, if I was running the game that Joe had described a year and a half ago when the that sparked this whole conversation, where a uh, metagamer was trying to coerce a new player to attack a particular enemy based on their position in the initiative order, that's different. I, I probably would have said something there, but... If, say, a party falls into a ramp trap and gets dumped into a green slime, mm-hmm. if they burn the players, uh, if they burn it off, uh, versus if they ask me, do we know to burn it off? I probably wouldn't call them on it. Now, if they say, uh, do we know about it? I'll have you roll against intelligence. And, yeah, if everybody rolls, it's probably good you'll know. Just that, That's something that you could potentially have heard from other adventurers in the tavern. But if they just go ahead and do it sure i that's that seems like something that is established enough the trolls and the uh, fire that seems like something that's established enough to me that really is uh, it's not metagaming enough to set off my, my metagaming threshold indicators so there's that, there's that and i guess it's a uh, it'll depend on the mood you catch me in <laughs> Oh goodness. So, moral story, bring cupcakes to the session.
5: The difference between meta gaming and player skill also tends to disappear if the role playing is actually being done well. Let's take the bugbear for example. There's no difference between the players calculating based on their meta knowledge the number of hit points he has left versus a good DM describing the situation. The bugbear is now a little hesitant. He's bleeding from a number of small wounds and he looks a little confused. He definitely doesn't look as strong as he did at the beginning of the fight.
3: That harkens back to what Jason was saying, kinda doubles back a little bit and you got the same impression he did. So if I as the referee simply tell you he's had seven hit points of damage or if you've tabulated it or if I as the referee omit description, then you have nothing to go on, and that's not fair of me at the ref- as the referee. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you have to be consistent in your descriptions, and you have to be on a level with the players. So the description you gave, I would use my magic missile, because I know he's been hit, and I know he's been uh, he's taken a lot of damage for a first-level enemy. Oh, bugbears have more than one hit die, but we're not, the we're, doesn't matter. So the point is, the description you gave me gives me the impression that we need to continue to take him out. We have a chance to take him out, that I don't need to retreat, but that I should continue to expend resources on him. Conversely, if, say, the bugbear is down on one knee, he seems to be trying to hold his own intestines in, and uh, stares defiantly through his one good eye, that, hmm, that one would be uh, more akin to don't waste your magic missile, and... Uh, given that description, um, I would potentially even parlay. <laughs> Brave little bugger, bugbear. Hmm.
5: So the bugbear situation really doesn't hold up if you're actually doing the role playing. The other problem are th- these things that were discussed, such as giving players false information with rumors. I don't see how that helps the game they'll just learn to never trust any rumor and you're just wasting your time. I'm fundamentally against the idea of trying to trick players. Somewhere on his blog, somewhere he said that um, players want to be heroes. That's right. You're trying to help them feel like heroes, not help them feel like fools.
3: Who then is the greater hero? The warrior who by their own hand succeeds against all odds, or the predestined, the chosen one, for whom divine ordinance determines their victory. Achilles, dipped in the river Styx, and nigh invulnerable to mortal weapons, or Hector, a mortal man, no advantage other than the skill of his experience, who was brave enough to stand against him. Regarding false rumors, if you give your players nothing but lies, then they will learn that there are nothing but lies. In that case, there's got to be something foul afoot, something causing the wrong rumors. Uh, Rick's story about an evil necromancer saying you can stop whites with salt knowing that you can't stop whites with salt. That's because there is an active antagonist in the picture. And theoretically, the players should investigate that sort of thing. So a healthy dose of context would be necessary, uh, or they're gonna lose a couple hirelings next time they bump up against him. Regarding random misinformation, I mentioned my third, third, third rule, and I didn't elaborate. What I mean by that is that When I create a rumor table, that is, random stuff that the players will hear in taverns and about town, roughly one third of them will be true, roughly one third of them will be false, and roughly one third of them will be somewhere in between. Typically it's a D12 table, one through four, five through eight, and then nine through 12. The true rumors, are gold, of course. The false rumors teach the party to be cautious or, if they don't, they lead to uh, dangerous misadventures that will test the player's skill, while the half-true rumors, again, that's an opportunity as the referee to put the party in a situation they didn't expect to be in and to create scenarios where they have to think on their feet. One of the key elements of player skill in games that I've been in, improvise. Figure out how to use the resources that you have to address the situation you're in. By putting the players in a situation where they don't have all the cards, then you force them to think outside the box. And when they do, that is huge. I don't remember the exact verbiage that I had in the podcast, but when the player solves a problem through the wit that they bring to the table, when they can use their tools in a way that they never themselves anticipated and they come out victorious, that's winning d So, doubling back, do they want to feel like a hero? Yes. But I would argue they feel more the hero when they see you working against them, they see the world working against them, and they come out on top having overcome the world. Thank you for calling in. It's cool to get to engage.
1: Hey Taylor, it's Randy from Biggest Geekers. Uh, player skill episode was fantastic, dude. Um, was really impressed with Joe Richter's c- uh, question, the idea of player skill versus metagaming. I thought uh, Rick had some really good insights um, I kind of dig the cut of his gym, and uh, Joe makes a good point. I'm not sure where – I think I think the metagame of making the player character is fine. Um, some of the other stuff gets annoying, but I don't know where to draw the line. How many times can you act like your character doesn't know what a troll is? I mean, there's something there that I think um, sometimes gets old, but I think Rick's solution of making the monsters unique is something that Joe and I have talked about, and I think it's something that you should do as a game master. Man, I'm sorry it's been so long. Keep on keeping on. We're gonna keep trying hard at Biggest Geek is too.
3: Best of luck to you, man. Talk to you soon. Keep on keeping on. Indeed, I have your recent episode or recent as of this recording queued up on my podcast player to keep me company this morning as I start my work day. Talking about how many times can you pretend not to know troll weaknesses? That and other really common monsters, like I mentioned when responding to John Lennon's call, I don't really police that as aggressively as I could. And to expand on it, i would responded to that, this is a couple days after I recorded that response, but the the reason that I don't really police it as much is in part because of the uh, troop nature of some of the games that I try to run having run games where players will have multiple characters, where at open tables where you're going to have a different party every sitting. The idea is, I don't like adventurer guilds, but you're going to have adventurers hanging out at the taverns talking to each other, and especially if the player has multiple characters, it may be difficult for them to separate which character has what knowledge. And adventurers brag. They, uh, If I were a uh, fighting man, and I were in a cavern with a troll and say I, my Saracen friend and my Swan May companion uh, thought we were goners but the Swan May struck it with his torch and we realized the wound didn't heal, you bet at the tavern I would be telling that story and embellishing every detail. So some of that stuff, so once once a party has encountered repeated uh, events, uh I don't really worry too much, especially in an open table environment, because some of that stuff is going to be common knowledge. Regarding changing up the monster, a lot of fun to do that, especially if you give subtle cute clues or telegraphs. One of the things I like to talk about with traps, I like to telegraph traps. And I've told other people the best trap is the trap that your players, after setting it off, will say, wait a minute, I should have seen that coming. Those are beautiful moments uh, for me as the referee. And the same can be said for monsters. So if you have a subtle difference in the monster and the players pick up on it, then boom, that's rewarding the player skill, that's rewarding player observation. And alternatively, if they don't pick up on it, after the fact they go, wait a minute, I should have known. Again, two beautiful outcomes for for tricking your players a little bit with changing it up in the monster. As for my guest, uh, like I said at the top of the show, I'm going to try to get more guests on, but like I don't know if I remember to said at the top of the show, that Rick is very knowledgeable, Rick is very experienced, and I enjoy my conversations with him on social media. And with that in mind, that's why I reached out to him and asked if he would be kind enough to show up on the show, and I count myself as very blessed in that regard. Thank you, Rick. I know you're listening. Thank you again for coming on. That was a that was a lot of fun for me to record the episode and based on the positive feedback we got we got a—I uh, think we hit a hit a nerve on that one so as we wait for joe to call in some more of his awesome questions i'll call you back on and we'll tackle in them in another day <laughs> thank you randy for calling in it's great to hear your voice and like i said i will hear it again after i get to work while you guys keep me company through the day delve on.
0: Thirty-five minutes in, and you know he nails it. I agree. Most players, at least the ones that I play with, don't really want to metagame per se. It's it's automatic, right? They do it naturally, and they like to be surprised. I know I do, and I know I metagame. I'll you know if I know the stats of a creature, it, automatically it's going to come up in my head. But I love being surprised, and I'm happy when things are changed. So yeah, thirty-five minutes in, that's gold. That you know really nails it. Okay, finished podcast. Great, great podcast. Thank you so much for putting it up. You know, I hope you can get them on again. The As far as, you know, some games having to have system mastery to build characters, that's 100% true. And, you know, when you get... And, and it really does blur the line because it's metagaming as far as, oh, I've read that adventure or I've read all the monsters in the monster manual and I know what each eye stalk on the Beholder does... I think is pretty clear cut. But in a superhero game, where the villains are built using the exact same mechanics as the heroes, and you have to know all the mechanics to correctly build a hero, then you're going to know how all the villain powers work, in theory, right? I mean, obviously the GM can tweak things, so NPCs work differently than PCs, but if you have to know how everything works, then is it really metagaming by knowing it? No.
3: Knowing the mechanics does not automatically imply metagaming. Using the knowledge of the mechanics in tandem with other, other meta-knowledge at the table in order to affect the table in an unfair way, that's metagaming. It's as much about the application as it is about the spirit. Harkening back to the Hobgoblin example, I'm running with Hobgoblin because we do know those are one-hit-die creatures, uh, or I'm pretty sure. <laughs> but. We know that monsters have a 1d8 hit die. We know that we've dealt 7 hit points to this one. Therefore, if he is a normal hobgoblin, we should use a stabbing attack, not a magic missile, because it's a waste of resources. That's metagaming, because we've used our meta-knowledge of the rules combined to affect something that we may not have known in person. Conversely, exact same situation where the referee establishes the extent of the injury through evocative description that's consistent with other descriptions that have been made, so the bugbear is uh, bleeding, he's staggering around, having a hard time doing his thing. That's not metagaming to say stab him, uh, or to parlay, because what you can see is the character is what you're acting on. Knowledge of the rules does not imply metagaming. It's only when you act on them in an unfair way. And I've kind of, uh, I I'm realizing the necessity of the anecdote, now that I'm talking through this, is because you have to give examples, and it's hard to identify what qualifies as a metagame activity especially when the line is kind of blurry. Uh, the role play aspect comes into it, the rules knowledge aspect comes into it, and similarly there's a, there's a threshold as to what one ref will consider metagame versus the other. So having those examples is really helpful because as I'm listening to myself talk, what I'm saying isn't necessarily clear as those examples were. So good conversation to have, good application of uh, a lot of real-world DM and playing experience goes into uh, a, good, a good story. So.
0: So at that point, obviously, it's how you apply that knowledge is whether it's metagaming or not, but it does blur the line some. But I, I think it was a great conversation, really enjoyed it, and yeah, I look forward to hearing another podcast in the future. Thank you so much. Take care of yourself, and we'll talk to you soon.
3: And turns out we agree. Should have listened to all of the messages before recording a response. Thank you for calling in. Uh, I look forward to making the next podcast. I look forward to listening on listening in to yours. And thank you for the prolific call-ins this episode, Jason.
6: Hey Taylor, great plug. Calling regarding player skill, or at least the. Uh, Part of it I want to talk about is uh, the creative side, less the system mastery side. I think there's a interesting, the, the line would look interesting on the graph regarding uh, with uh, age, player age on one axis and player skill on the other. With a younger age, you would start higher. And then as you get older, it would dip lower until more uh, like media is consumed, like books, and uh books and movies and tv shows and stuff and i think uh video games would play a much lesser role here uh in swinging that creative player skill back up towards the top of the graph what do you think
3: i think you got me thinking i want to approach this in two ways first we have the Ingestion of media that you talked about, so playing games, reading books, etc. And then you talked about age. And <clears throat> I'm going to take it from two approaches. On the one hand, I 100% agree with you. As the parent of a small child and someone who is around small children frequently by necessity, they have very active imaginations and they're unbiased. They don't have the experiences with games they don't have the experiences with video games in particular uh, or video games or tabletop games like and so the OSR think outside the character sheet that's natural for them they can't think inside the character sheet because they don't know what's on the character sheet so children absolutely have a definitive advantage when it comes to thinking outside the box and being creative with this stuff that they have on their person on the other end of the spectrum you have uh, older folks who may have skipped a generation. You may—you have older folks who may have had the opportunity to dive into the uh, Appendix in, but you touch on that w- a little bit later in the call-ins so I'll wait to address that until we get there and then you have the middle zone. The middle zone are the people who have played a lot of newer school games, people who've played a lot of video games and who may through their exposures presumably not osr games people who are new to osr type experiences they may come into the game with the same assumptions they have going into say a video game a video game is actively detrimental because it forces you to think inside the box even with big open world awesome games uh, Morrowind comes to mind Uh, I will constantly shill Morrowind uh, if you catch me on discord talking about video games but even it is limited in the sense that you're inside the box you're inside the confines of the programming and when you're talking about the uh, fantasy adventure you're you're not when I am the computer I the referee am the computer my programming is far beyond anything you're going to find in a video game and that's not to say that i'm smarter or faster than a computer i think that uh, the actual plays i've posted prove otherwise <laughs> but my breadth of experience is greater than a company project budget can be to create a uh, functioning responsive world so i'm able to create dialogue on the spot at least and to this point while chatbots are a thing they're not quite at the point yet where you can have adventure bots
6: i guess uh part two uh i say this because i ran a game uh at my local spot the other day that included a uh, 10 to 11 year old kid and that kid had uh way cooler ideas than The other two at the table, which included probably a 16, 17 year old and uh, somewhere around my age, 30, mid thirties. And I feel like in this. uh, I haven't been reading too many books here in the recent. Recent history, and I feel like with the Ash Coast game I played in, I was really rusty and low on ideas and was like really impressed by. uh, Slight spoiler to follow. Uh, Jeff's idea with the skeletons, where uh, we just like sat back and waited to see if they would just uh, ignore us because we had the cultist ropes on.
3: For folks who are outside the know, the Ash Coast game that Josh here is referencing is the actual play, OD&D and Chainmail kind of hybrid game that we have been playing over on the Clericsware Ringmail Discord. Um, He's made it out to two sessions. There have been three so far. And they... We're trekking about on the interior of the Brass Ziggurat. uh, I won't go into too many details. I talk about it enough in other places, but I encourage you listeners, if you have not already, head on over to the YouTube channel where I've posted all of these play reports. As of this recording, two of them are edited, one of them is available, and one of them will be out Saturday, the 3rd of September. So that'll, as of the release of this episode, two of them at least will be out and ready for consumption. To your point about reading, I haven't been doing a lot of reading either. Uh, I feel bad about it. I actually slowed down on reading blogs. I slowed down on listening to podcasts. Life happens. uh, Being at the stage in life where we are, that is you and I and a couple others, it's hard. And uh, it's Ray Otis. You heard him on the podcast earlier. He, in one of his episodes, talked about a point in his life where he wasn't playing much because his kids were really young and the only times he got to play were at conventions and so on. And he would go on to talk about uh, something else. But the point is, it's a stage in life that we're in. Uh, being with young children, being uh, doing the career thing. Yeah, it can make uh, it can make hobbies hard and it can make reading hard. Um I know I'm looking up at my desk here. I'm going to lose some OSR cred. I've got uh Brandon Sanderson's uh Stormlight Archive sitting up there. Huh. Actually, it's not up there. I guess it's uh, somewhere else, but that's another thing. Being uh being middle-aged and married it's uh... everything disappears i can't uh... whenever i need any of my own stuff i have to go searching for it (laughs) But the moral story is i read the first book way of kings i read the second book uh... something i don't remember the title but the third book uh... oath bringer i got halfway in haven't touched it since because my kids were born. And uh, since then, uh, I was able to read Three Hearts, Three Lions while on FMLA uh, following the birth of my child. Uh, and I was able to read some Conan while he was in the hospital. But yeah, life is very fast at this point, And it happens. So why am I waxing poetic about life stages? Well, again, we'll go back to Ray Otis. Ray and Evil Jeff, who is my next caller actually, Ray and Evil Jeff collaborated uh, maybe a year ago at this point and they talked about books because Jeff had an uncle who, or was it your dad? Uh, you Call in, correct me, but anyway Jeff had an older relative who had a massive absolutely massive uh, book collection so the man read like nobody's business and so those two were going back, they were talking about the books, talking about their inspirations and Coincidentally, both of them, they're at the next stage in life. Both of them, their kids were young. Their kids have grown. Uh, Some of them are moving out. Some of them are going to college. Some of them are getting jobs. and Now, they're able to come back and do a lot more reading. So, why I say that is twofold. One, don't... uh, Don't feel too bad. Uh, Jeff is a little younger than you and I are, I believe. Not too much younger, but younger enough that he still has that youthful exuberance. Um, And two, our time will come again. Uh, Moreover, people who are either too young to have been corrupted, as I mentioned earlier, or people who are old enough to have circled back, that's the prime demographic. At least that's what my uh, <laughs> that's what my anchor statistics tell me. So once you, once you get to that point where you can get back into the fiction, get back into Appendix N, get the feel for what the game was designed, the reading Vance, reading Moorcock, reading Anderson, reading Howard, get back into the headspace of the of the game, then it'll all come back to you. And I say, I joke that Jeff is a little younger than we are, but Jeff is also a very clever player because he's played so much. Yet to talking to him, he was introduced to the game by his father when he was a kid and he's been playing non-stop ever since. And I know he's in two or three games right now, runs a couple games, and so it's like any muscle. The more you use it, the, the stronger it's gonna get. So, in the meantime, welcome to the Ash Coast. Keep on flexing. And eventually, you're gonna flex harder than those uh, cat-eared folks that may or may not have dropped by the time this episode airs.
6: Uh, For the record, I was uh, delving deeper for this little group, so nothing they were used to at all. And I even had the uh, the the middle the middle kid was uh, even trying his hand at mathing, so that was really exciting for me to see. I'm hoping I can infect the rest of my Little tiny corner of Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, but uh, yeah, that's about it.
3: Infect away, brother, and if I'm ever up your way, I'll give you a holler and I'll help you spread, Delvon, friend, and thank you for calling in.
0: Hey Taylor, Evil Jeff, just listened to your latest podcast with Rick Stump. Great podcast really gave answers to questions that I didn't realize I had and helped define those terms that you were looking to define there. You know, what is metagaming? What is, you know, player knowledge and and character knowledge? You know, player skill and so forth. So, yeah, very good episode. And I think uh, if anybody's still questioning it after that, maybe they need to listen to the podcast again. Glad to see that you're over at the don't split the party in Discord as well. And, uh, yeah, just do, keep keep on keeping on, like you say. Delve on. Appreciate it. Look forward to the next time you and Rick
5: get together. Later.
3: Delve on, friend. Thank you for the call in. Thank you for the encouragement. And rest assured, I'm just as excited about my next episode as you are. The community that we have is always relative to the community that we make. And I'm very grateful for the community that is kind of fostered through the Discords, through the Anchor Sphere, and through the other avenues of communication, the Roll20s, the Foundry Forges, the the, uh, Google uh, podcast podcatcher that I've been using. I'm grateful, Jeff, for you, grateful, Jason, for you, grateful, John, grateful, Rick, grateful, everyone who's called in. If I'm not naming you, it's just because there are so many names in this wonderful little corner of the Internet of ours for me to pipe up through while I'm coming off the uh, interstate and pulling into my work parking spot. So, with that said, thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, callers, for calling in. And thank you, uh, uh, Delvers, for delving how you do. Delve on, everybody. Delve on. swearing mail Podcast is an independently owned and operated product released for educational and informative purposes under the Totally Steal This license, which is kind of like Creative Commons, except for <coughs> licensing. Segments recorded within a vehicle are recorded using a Bluetooth hands-free device in conjunction with local vehicular safety legislation. The music for the swearing Ringmail Podcast is Cold Coffee by Michael Raniere C, retrieved from Mixkit.co and used under the Mixkit royalty-free music license. Sound effects used in the Swearing Ringmail Podcast are also retrieved from Mixkit.co and used in accordance with the Mixkit free sound effects license. swearing mail does not ascribe to nor endorse views or opinions expressed by call-ins guests, or even hosts, unless you think they're awesome, and thus does not assume any liability regarding the consumption or distribution of this podcast. By listening to the swearing mail Podcast, you agree to these provided terms. Parties with questions regarding these terms, conditions, or are encouraged to reach out to clear, swear, Email at the prescribed methods provided on the Clear Square Email blog. Parties dissatisfied with these terms, conditions, and releases are encouraged to go suck an egg.